Hi, this is Edwin Crozier of the Franklin Church of Christ in Franklin, Tennessee. I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us as we study together. The lesson you're about to hear was presented to the Franklin Church on November 23, 2008. Sadly, sometimes the philosophies of men creep into Christ's church. We need to keep our eyes open and help encourage Christians to simply be guided by Jesus and his word. This lesson looks at a dangerous philosophy that we need to keep out of Christ's church. So, I invite you to open your Bible and be ready to learn about Christian humanism. Perhaps the most reprehensible and ridiculous philosophy that curses our modern world is that of secular humanism. Humanists and what they teach today, while some may give some kind of credence to some kind of God, basically place man as the highest creature in the universe. And in the Humanist Manifesto number two, which you can find online, and I've got a website where I was able to find it on the outline, they point out that as humanists, we start with humans, not God, nature, not deity. And we can take a look at some of the things that humanists say to us. We believe, this is in the Humanist Manifesto number two, just some excerpts from it. We believe, however, that traditional dogmatic or authoritarian religions that place revelation, God, ritual, or creed above human needs and experience do a disservice to the human species. But we reject those features of traditional religious morality that deny humans a full appreciation of their own potentialities and responsibilities. It goes on to say in another place, promises of immortal salvation or fear of eternal damnation are both illusory and harmful. They distract humans from present concerns, from self-actualization, and from rectifying social injustices. We affirm that moral values derive their source from human experience. Ethics is autonomous and situational, needing no theological or ideological sanction. Ethics stems from human need and interest. To deny this distorts the whole basis of life. Human life has meaning because we create and develop our futures. Happiness and the creative realization of human needs and desires individually and in shared enjoyment are continuous themes of humanism. We strive for the good life here and now. The goal is to pursue life's enrichment despite debasing vulgarization, commercialization, and dehumanization. And there's a whole lot more stuff like that. But we can basically sum up the concept of secular humanism very simply. While we might give some kind of credence and some kind of lip service to the society and the group, basically the idea of humanism is that the individual, his goals, his desires, his wants, his needs, his morality is supreme. And therefore the individual can do whatever he wants because that individual is his only source of accountability. And in fact, no one really has the ability or the authority or the responsibility to hold anyone else accountable to some standard that we might come up with. That's secular humanism. 
But I don't bring these things up to you to rebuke the secular humanists. In fact, I doubt that we have any secular humanists in our midst today. It would be kind of pointless for me to rail against that and try to bring any of those folks to repentance today. But I want to talk about another individual. A person that I have seen as I've talked with Christians across the brotherhood sneaking his way into the church. Concepts and philosophies that are, are impacting not only the world but also Christians. I want to talk about the Christian humanist. Christian humanism. And, and what I see here is the person that while they believe in God and they even believe that God has given us a standard, they work in such a way as to, to essentially dispense with that. And at times it sounds so logical, but when we examine it, we begin to recognize that it's not at all what Scripture has for us. And I want us to talk about this concept of Christian humanism. I think we've seen over the years throughout the past century, as, as those who would classify themselves, or who might not classify themselves, we would classify them this way as Christian humanists, move into the more liberal denominations and then have progressively worked their way through more and more conservative churches, even into churches that we might call sound and very conservative. And we need to make sure that we're holding this away from us, that we're not getting involved in this kind of mindset or this mentality. We need to recognize that there is a standard. We need to recognize that we're not allowed to just do whatever we want. We need to recognize that others are allowed to hold us accountable to that standard. And we need to make sure that we stand firm with God's Word and not allow the philosophies of men to mix in with the doctrine of Christ. And I fear that sometimes there are Christians... Some, some might realize they're doing this. Some might be just kind of going with the flow and not realizing this is going on. But we just need to be aware of how this can impact us if we allow the world's philosophies to come into what we do as Christians. Before we get into the lesson, would you bow with me, please? Almighty God and Father in heaven, we lift you up because you are worthy and awesome. You are powerful beyond our imagination and your way is best. Help us, Father, to always remember that. Help us that, to, to understand that this is not some issue of just trying to live by some kind of checklist of rules, but to understand that you are the great God and your way works. Help us not uh, think that, that we are above you. Help us to not think that we're bigger than you. Help us to not think that our plans can be greater than yours. Help us to understand that your way is best and your will is what will accomplish victory for us. Help us not to, to be distracted by the philosophies of the world around us, but rather help us to lift up your name so that you might be glorified, to follow your will, to pursue your patterns in our individual lives and in our congregations as we live in this world. Help forgive us, Father, for the times that we have turned away from your will, for the times that we thought our way will work, for the times that we wanted to pursue our own goals and our passions and have lifted ourselves up and made ourselves God in our lives. Forgive us for that. And help us to overcome those temptations that Satan puts before us. Father, we praise your name. And we're thankful that you have loved us and sent your Son to cleanse us from all unrighteousness so that we can glorify you. Help us not to... Allow that to distract us from obeying you. Help us not to use that as a license for sin, but rather, Father, as freedom to obey you and glorify you before the world. We love you, Father, and we thank you for loving us. Through your Son's name we pray. Amen. As we consider this, just as Jesus pointed out in the Sermon on the Mount, by their fruits you will know them. We can take a look at where this leads and understand the problems that it has. And I just want to show three things, three characteristics of this idea of Christian humanism that I think we need to be on the watch for in our own lives as well as in the church. 
to, to make sure that we're not being pulled aside by the worldly philosophies. The very first thing that we need to recognize is that, that the Christian humanist believes that there is no standard. Now, the secular humanist says that there's no standard giver, and because there is no standard giver, there is just no standard. The Christian humanist, on the other hand, will believe in a standard giver, and they might even say, yes, we know that he has given us a standard. But what they do is turn around and, and make that of no effect by the way that they teach it and by the way they present it so that in the end, even though they pay homage to the standard giver, even though they say that they're teaching from the standard itself, by the time they're done, they've actually removed the concept of a standard at all. Let, let me show you how this looks. No, nobody comes in that I've seen and just says, hey, there's no standard. No, nobody ever says that. But but they bring it in through various things, some of which sound so nice and so wonderful, and even at times so godly and spiritual. But they twist what the Word says, and they present something. For instance, some come in and say, well, you know God is love. First John chapter 4 and verse 8, God is love. Y'all believe that? Yeah, I believe that. God is love. God is absolutely love. God is so much love that when we sin, He sent His Son to die for us so that we can be forgiven, our unrighteousness can be taken away, and we'd be free to follow His standard. You see, the problem is that some folks today say that, well, God is just so much love that He's not going to judge anybody. He's not really going to hold us accountable to any standard. And at the end, it's really just going to kind of be, oh, you know, y'all just come on in. I know it's tough down there. And just God loves us so much that He won't punish anyone. And by the time they're done with this doctrine, basically what they've said is, there's just no standard. Or they might point out to us that the Bible is inaccurate. Now, I've heard people make that claim. The Bible is just inaccurate. I even heard one person make the comment one time, you know what, we need to trust the actions of Jesus more than the writings of Paul. Their idea was that those who have written the Bible allowed their own attitudes and their own emotions and their own outlooks to come into the Bible. And so what we're getting is not really God's Word, but man's outlook, so we can't trust that. You know, here's my question. If I can't trust the writings of those Christians, how can I trust what they wrote about the actions of Jesus? And so they'll tell us, well, the Bible's inaccurate, and so we just can't be sure. We, you know, we're just looking at that. That's just the, the, the enlightenment of a group of people who tried to serve God, and we can gain some good things from them, but we don't have to be bound by what they said and by what they did. So the Bible's just inaccurate. They might say that the Bible is confusing. You know, the Bible is just not that clear. The, the Bible uses words, and, and, and we're just not always sure what those words mean, and so we just shouldn't be dogmatic. I, I think about folks who look at Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, and it says, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, now to me, that just seems absolutely clear. That doesn't seem confusing at all. But some will tell us, Oh, but wait a minute, that word for... We don't really know what that word for means. That, that could mean in order to. It could mean because of. And, and so we just don't really know what this verse means. And therefore, we shouldn't really use it dogmatically to teach whatever we're, we're going to talk about. Or, or John chapter 3. If you look in John chapter 3. John in chapter 3 and verse 3, Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Well, Nicodemus didn't understand that. He said, what, I've got to go into my mother's womb again? In verse 5, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of God. 
Now, in the biblical context of baptism, I think it's pretty obvious that being born of water means baptism. In fact, just in this chapter, that's what Jesus is doing. They're baptizing people. And yet some folks would tell us, well, you know, we're just not sure. You know, there's some passages where water is related to the Word. There's some passages where, you know, water, it could be talking about the water of the, the amniotic fluid. And, and we just don't know. You know, It's not that they're going to say that it's just not that. What we, it's just so confusing. We can't really know. And so we shouldn't have this this idea of a real standard. Or they might say to us, well, you know, as long as Jesus is Lord, it doesn't matter what you do. We're all, saving the, we're all serving the same Lord. We're all going to the same place. We're just taking different ways to get there. And so there's not really a standard of how to act and how to worship God and how a congregation should act. Because, you know, just as long as Jesus is Lord, but, you know, if Jesus is Lord, what are we going to do? I, I can't just say Jesus is Lord and then do whatever I want. Jesus is only my Lord if I'm doing what Jesus wants. Or they might say to us, well, you know, there's continuing revelation. And this one's kind of subtle. Folks who would say continuing revelation, they still believe in a standard giver and they still believe in a standard, but when we take a look at what the Scripture says, we begin to realize that, that what this actually finally gets to is I am my own standard. The way I feel and what I believe God has laid on my heart is my standard. We need to remember what it says in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning at verse 8. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. This perfect is talking about the complete. It's talking about when all of the revelation has come. See, this prophecy and this tongues and these miraculous gifts were the revelation of God's will, and they were in part. But when it's all come, we won't need that anymore. Why? Because we'll have all that God wants us to have and all that we need. And so what we find from folks today who are banking on continuing revelation, it's, it's while they'll say there's a standard, what it comes down to is that really they're saying there's not a standard except for what I want and what I believe. We need to remember what Jesus has pointed out and what the Word has pointed out. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 17, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 17, Paul said, Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. God does have His will. And He has given it to us in a way that we can understand. We need to remember John chapter 12 and verse 48. John chapter 12 and verse 48. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. God says that there is a standard of judgment. We're not left just free willy-nilly to do what we want. There is a standard by which we are going to be judged. In Romans chapter 11 and verse 22. In Romans chapter 11 and verse 22, the Scripture here says, Note then, this is Romans 11:22. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. We've got to recognize there is great kindness in God. He is love. But He does have severity reserved for those who will not abide by the standard that God has established for us. And finally, take a look at 2 Peter chapter 3. At 2 Peter chapter 3, Verses 15 and 16. 
It says, count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. It is true that there are some things difficult to understand. There are some things hard to grasp. But hard and difficult are not the same as impossible. It is true that going through the Scripture is a growth process. And I hope that nothing I've said here today has caused you to think that if I get anything wrong today, if I'm wrong about anything and I die tonight, I'm going to hell. That's just not true. It is about growth. We are growing. But what the Christian humanist does is he takes the leap from understanding that it's a growth process to saying that now I can just be indefinitely wrong and not worry about it and just do whatever I want because God really isn't going to hold me to a standard. And that's just not true. It is growth. We're wrong today on something. And we might still be saved even if we die, even though we're wrong on something. But that doesn't mean we just get to continue indefinitely in ignorance. We need to be growing in Christ's Word because there is a standard and we need to be looking to it and letting it affect our lives more and more each day. But this brings us to a second conclusion. The Christian and humanist not only says that there is no standard, but then he'll come behind that and he'll want to say to us, therefore, I can believe and practice what I want. Now, for the secular humanist, again, there's no standard giver, there's no standard except what I want. I am my own standard based on my experiences and my beliefs and, and my needs and my desires. Now, they'll, they'll toss in a little bit there about being uh, responsible to the community, but in the end, you have to ask why. What makes that right? If I get to be my own standard, why do I have to worry about you? Well, because it's the right thing to do. Why is it the right thing to do? Well, because I think it's the right thing. Yeah, yeah but I don't. And I'm my own standard, right? So for secular humanism, that's all kinds of problems. For Christian humanism, of course, they'll point out that we have a standard giver. We even have a standard. But like the Pharisees in Mark chapter 7 and verse 13. Look in Mark 7 and verse 13. Here it talks about these Pharisees who no doubt love the Word of God. They try to lift up the Word of God. But in Mark chapter 7 and verse 13 it says, making void the Word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. This is exactly what happens in this, this concept of Christian humanism. They believe in the standard giver. They believe that there's a standard. But by the time they're done, they make void that standard. And it becomes useless in our lives uh, if we follow the philosophy that, that is held here. Now, there's some who are who we might classify as being kind of a Christian humanist, who, who would try to distinguish between the belief and the practice. And they'll say that it's okay to believe whatever you want as long as you don't practice anything that's wrong. You know, we might hear that in the form of discussions on divorce. It's okay to believe whatever you want about that as long as you don't actually get a divorce. You know, the problem with that is, is that in the end, if I can believe what I want, I can practice what I want. It, this... This idea that somehow I can believe something wrong as long as I don't ever do it, there's something kind of messed up in there. Because if I really believe this is right, then what am I going to do? And if I'm not doing what I believe is right, we've got a problem, don't we? So I think we need to be careful there. Of course, very few people will just come in and say, I can believe whatever I want, I can do whatever I want. I'm not sure of any Christians who would ever say it like that. But instead, what we might hear is, well, we just can't understand the Bible. We just can't understand the Bible. It's so confusing. In fact, sometimes it's just contradictory. And, and, and you know, 
Acts 2.38 says, Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. But John 3.16 says that he that believes shall be saved. And all of that's just so confusing and I just don't know. And, and so we just shouldn't be dogmatic about those things. And, and so, you know what, if you want to follow Acts 2.38 and say that you need to be repent and be baptized for your sins, that's okay. I'm going to follow John 3.16. But you see, there's kind of the idea of I'm giving lip service to the standard, but in reality, who's my standard? Just me and just whatever I want to do. But the Bible, boy, it's just confusing. We, we just don't know what to do with that. Others, you might hear, my happiness is God's standard. Oh, we definitely hear. I hear this so often, especially when it comes to the way we live in marriage. I don't know how many times people have come into my office and, and said that they didn't have to do what God said they were supposed to as a husband or a wife, and the reason is, is because God wanted them to be happy. And I'm just not happy in this marriage. So this idea that God's real goal in all this is our happiness. We need to understand God's real goal is our holiness, not our happiness. Yes, if we submit to God and we do His will and we surrender to Him, it will produce a happiness. A happiness that, that as we're in the world we can't really understand. But that's not God's goal. God's goal is our holiness, to cleanse us of our sins and help us to be righteous. His standard is not our happiness. But some folks have this idea, well, He wants me to be happy and this doesn't make me happy. Now, I realize that God's way probably works for most people and, and most of you guys need to do what it says. But me, I'm the exception in this case because this isn't making me happy and so I'm going to do what I want. Or a third way that you might hear folks say this, i just got to study for myself. Now, do you have to study for yourself? Absolutely. Obviously, you have to study for yourself. That'd be crazy. It's not my job to do your study for you. It's not my job to decide what everybody is supposed to believe and then hand it down as some, from some edict on high. But what often happens here is that it's twisted. This idea of I must study for myself doesn't mean what the Scripture wants us to mean. Studying for myself means I have to have my own faith. I don't get to ride on the coattails of your faith. I need to understand the Scripture for myself and work on it there instead of just letting somebody else study it and, and do whatever they say. And the reason is because they might be wrong. But the problem is some folks take this idea that I'm a study for myself and they think that it equals, well, I just get to believe whatever I want. Okay, that's what your study has shown you, but my study has shown something else. Now listen, I understand I might be wrong about something and that's why you need to study for yourself. But the fact that we all need to study for ourselves does not mean that we all get to do just whatever we want. Studying for ourselves means in order to assure that I'm doing God's will and surrendering to Him, I'm developing my own faith. We need to remember Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, beginning at verse 5. That because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There, excuse me, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. God has a standard. And we're supposed to live by that standard. God has given it to us in a way that we can understand. Does it take work to understand it? Absolutely it takes work. But we can understand it. 
And his purpose is for our holiness, not our happiness. We've got to understand that standard. Otherwise, he will, in fact, judge us. We need to grow in that standard. Because that's his goal. His goal was to give this to us to make us righteous, to make us more like his son. We don't get to just do whatever we want. And then the third issue is that, well, you know, there is no standard, so I can do whatever I want, which finally means you're not allowed to say anything about it. Nobody can say anything about it. Nobody's allowed to judge me. The secular humanist, that's, that's really their number one thing, that, that as the individual, I am supreme, and, and it's all situational, and I get to be the judge, and nobody else is allowed to say what I am supposed to live by. Of course, interestingly, they'll say all kinds of things if what I want to live by is the Bible. See, I'm not really allowed to do that. You know, the humanists are going to judge me for that. Now, the Christian humanist basically has that same idea. That uh, you know, I do what I want, I study for myself, and nobody, no church, no God is allowed to tell me what to do. I am supreme in my authority. Now, of course, well, actually, I have, I've heard people actually say this. But a lot of times, you, you won't hear them say it this way. You, you'll hear them say it in, in some other ways. For instance, they might say, you know, Matthew 7, 1 says you're not allowed to judge. Matthew 7, 1 says, judge not, lest you be judged. And, and with the judgment that you judge, you'll be judged. But we understand from the Scripture that that does not mean that there is no judgment. That doesn't mean that we don't even have judgment. There are other passages that tell us to judge with righteous judgment. There are passages that command us to judge between members of the congregation. That, that passage there is talking about a hypocritical and a hypercritical judgment. It's the kind of judgment where I'm living this way, but then I'm going to judge you for it. It's the kind of judgment that, that puts putting you in your place above helping you serve the Lord and helping you go to heaven. That's what, that's what he's condemning there. He's not condemning any and every judgment. But, but you know what's interesting? Whenever the Christian humanist brings this up, you're not allowed to judge. It, it causes the great question, are you judging me for judging? Great problem that we have there. Or, we have some that use Romans 14. And they continue this idea that Romans 14, where it talks about how we can accept one another, where we do have differences and disagreements, and, and, and we're not exactly on the same page as, as things. And they take Romans 14 and say that what Romans 14 means is even though you believe somebody's sinning, you're not allowed to say anything about it. Now, we're not going to spend all day on Romans 14 here, but just understand this, and I encourage you to study it on your own. You can go to the website. We do have a lesson there that you can look up on Romans 14. But, but I'll encourage you to look at Romans 14 and notice that Romans 14 does not say if you think somebody is absolutely sinning, don't do anything about it. Romans 14 says if you have doubts, don't participate in it. But somebody else who's doing it, you're not allowed to condemn them for it. But it also says that if I don't have doubts and I know that you do, I'm not supposed to go trying to push you to do something you have doubts about. So Romans 14 talks about it doesn't say if I am convinced you're sinning, I can't say anything about it. We need to recognize that. Further, you might hear somebody say, well, we're just trying to be pragmatic. And you know, if you push this idea of a standard, you're just going to splinter the church. And eventually, oh, I've heard this over tons and tons of times. You know, by the, by the time we're done, it's just going to be you and your wife, and she might even split off from you. And I fear that. I don't always have all the answers for, for where we, when we stay in fellowship and when we continue a congregation and when we have to divide because we, we can no longer in good conscience be in fellowship over some issue. I struggle, and, and I am not about to stand up here and act like I've got all the answers on all those questions. And that's why we're growing and working together. But I'll tell you what, 
This idea that, well, there are going to be some people that won't accept the Word of God and they might leave and you'll splinter the church and so don't abide by a standard and don't start telling people how, or sharing with people how they're supposed to live or teaching how they're supposed to live. It's just bogus. Second Timothy chapter 4. Second Timothy chapter 4. I'd actually get to Second Timothy instead of First Timothy. We'd be at the right place. Second Timothy chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The fact is, Paul prophesied that there's going to be a kind of time that people will claim that they're Christians, but they won't want to listen to Christ's doctrine. And, and, and if they split off, that's what's going to happen. And I, I know that we have to work our way through and, and understand growth and how we can work together, and, and that there are issues of Romans 14 that we have to keep in mind, but we do need to understand this. The fact that some people will claim to be Christians and not accept Christ's doctrine, it's, it's found that it's going to happen in Scripture. And we don't respond to that by saying, you know what, we're just not going to tell anybody how they should live. Because what Paul said was preach the word, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. We do it with patience, we do it with instruction, but it's still something that we have to do. Because there is a standard. And we're not allowed to do just whatever we want. And we are to hold one another accountable to that. Or they might say to us, well, autonomy, congregational autonomy, you're not allowed to say anything about what we do because we're in different congregations. I believe in congregational autonomy. In fact, I, I think that's one of the greatest concepts of God's pattern regarding His church. Because if one church goes off the deep end, everybody else doesn't go off the deep end. If one man in some council decides to teach error, it doesn't go down through everybody else. Each congregation has to, to get into the Word, study for themselves. Not that we get to do whatever we want. But we have our own faith and we just do what the Word says. I think congregational autonomy is a wonderful thing, but congregational autonomy does not teach that we don't hold others accountable. Consider Acts 15. In Acts 15, you'll remember that men from Judea went out and began to teach the Gentiles that they had to be circumcised in order to be saved. Paul and a group of men from Antioch went to the Jerusalem church. Now, they didn't go to find out what they should teach. Paul knew what he should teach. In Galatians, he said, I didn't have to learn it from another man. Paul didn't go to Jerusalem to find out what to teach on this. Paul went to Jerusalem because teachers of error were coming out of Jerusalem, and they had to get to the bottom of this. And they got there, and they debated it, and Jerusalem found out that they had people that believed error, and then Jerusalem sent out a letter saying, Here's what we need to be teaching. We didn't send these men out. We're sorry that they troubled you, but here's what we believe and practice, and here's what we think you should. They didn't start some new laws. They weren't some head council. What I want you to notice, though, is that in the end, if Jerusalem had decided they were going to teach circumcision was essential, now I don't know exactly what would have happened between those two congregations. Jerusalem, as a congregation, was autonomous. They would decide what they were going to do. But they had to be subject to the chief shepherd when the Antioch church saw that they were wrong, thought that they were doing wrong because these men came out. They sent somebody and talked to them about it. They didn't just say, oh, congregational autonomy, we're, we're not allowed to do that. And we're not, oh, they just, they just get to do whatever they want. They held them accountable. And of course it brought them to unity. Brought them to unity. 
Or then finally, sometimes they don't have any defense. They'll just bully you. They'll just call you names and they'll just say, you know, you know, you're a judge and how awful you are. You think you're the only ones going to heaven and, you know, you're just a spiritual abuser and all these kinds of things. They don't have a defense. They just try to bully you into leaving them alone. But we do need to understand this. We need to remember what it says in Galatians chapter 6. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul said in Galatians 6 and verse 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. We're supposed to hold each other accountable. Yes, we do it with gentleness. This is not about putting each other in their place. This is not about some type of war of proving that I'm right. But there is a standard. And we are allowed to say things to folks who are in sin. And folks are allowed to say things to us if we're sinning. Luke chapter 17 and verse 3. In Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17 and verse 3. Jesus said, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. You see, folks are allowed to say things to us when we're sinning, when they believe we're sinning. We need to take those rebukes, those exhortations, in the way God wants us to. We need to look at ourselves and look at the Scripture. Yes, some folks will be wrong when they rebuke us. And if that's the case, then we stand up and we show the Scripture that justifies us and we live the way God says, not the way man says. But sometimes they'll be right. And we need to realize they're allowed to do that. And that we need to submit to what the Scripture says if we've been wrong. Now, I shared with you these three keys here that uh, there's no standard. I can believe and practice what I want. You can't say anything about it. And I've presented them in kind of their foundational approach. I mean, kind of the foundation is and there's no standard. And that leads to saying I can believe and practice what I want. And that leads to saying you can't say anything about it. But my experience in churches have been that the way this comes into the church is exactly backwards. Some folks will start saying, you're not allowed to say anything about what I do. And as they discuss that and argue that and push for that, in order to be consistent, then they have to back up and say, well, I'm allowed to believe and practice what I want. Now, again, they won't ever say it like that. They'll say some of those other things. But finally, if they're going to pursue that approach, eventually they're going to have to get around to saying there is no standard. Again, they may not say it in those words. And so I'm just sharing with you, if you're at this point where you like to tell people they're not allowed to say anything about what you say and do, you are on a very slippery slope. And be careful, because to be consistent, you're going to eventually have to get to the point where you attack the standard of God instead of submitting to the standard of God. This is not how we're supposed to live. As Christians, we need to remember that we do have a standard giver. He does have a standard. We can understand it, and we need to grow in it. Yes, it's growth. It's progress, not perfection. I understand that. But that does not allow us this leap to say that what we do doesn't matter. That does not allow us this leap to say that anybody just gets to do what they want. We need to be studying together and getting into the Word and progressing and understanding what Jesus has said. I believe it's in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 30. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 30, where Jesus says, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. We've got to be with Jesus. We've got to make sure that we're growing in His standards no matter what anybody else says. And we need to be helping others grow in that standard as well. And I'll tell you where that begins. That begins with how we enter Christ. You know, the fact is, there are folks today, I've even recently heard a lesson by by a brother in Christ that cast doubt on what the Word of God says about how to become a child of God. 
And that, you know, that just shocks me. But the Scripture is pretty clear about that. In my opinion, Jesus said, He that believes and is baptized will be saved. Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins. Peter says, Like figure whereunto, baptism doth also now save us. So the Scripture is pretty clear that we've got to believe Jesus and turn away from our sins, confessing our faith in Him and being baptized for the remission of our sins. There's just, there's just no way to get around that unless we're going to say that there's just no standard. There is a standard and we need to live by it. Especially when it comes to becoming a child of God. I certainly hope that was edifying to you. Most of all, I hope it glorified God. Let's remember what we've learned. Christian humanists, while paying lip service to God in the Bible, behave in three ways. One, they act as if there is really no standard of conduct and faith for congregations or individuals. Two, they act as if individuals and churches are allowed to do whatever they want. Three, they act as if no one is allowed to say anything about what they are doing. Each of these behaviors is merely an expression of the dangerous philosophy of modern humanism, and we need to keep them out of our lives and our congregations. If you have any questions about this lesson or any other spiritual issue, or if you have any prayer requests, please feel free to call us at 615-794-2359, or you can contact us through our website at franklinchurchofchrist.com. If you're ever in the Middle Tennessee area, we would love to meet you face-to-face. Please drop in for any of our classes or assemblies. You can find times of meeting and directions at our website. Again, that's franklinchurchofchrist.com. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to him. More importantly, may you richly bless God.